Section 4 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, October 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in April 2021. The Geospheres, Part 1. By W. J. McGee. Vice-President of the National Geographic Society. An address delivered before the National Educational Association, Washington, July 9, 1898. Perhaps it is my first duty, as it is a privilege, to offer you a word of welcome on behalf of the society which I have the honor to represent, one of the institutions of the national capital engaged in its own way in educational work. Speaking for that society, Mr. President and ladies and gentlemen of the National Educational Association, I bid you cordial welcome to Washington and place at your disposal all the facilities which are ours. Before leading you away from the Earth's surface, which has been so admirably described by the last speaker, I wish to confess that I labor under a certain embarrassment. In the first place, I am attempting to speak for another man and on his subject. The subject was chosen by Major J. W. Powell, first an educator like most of you, then a soldier who left an arm at Shiloh, next the explorer of Colorado Canyon, the boldest piece of exploratory work in the history of our country, then a geologist and long director of the U.S. Geological Survey, at the same time an ethnologist and founder of the Bureau of American Ethnology, and from first to last a philosopher, one of the most vigorous thinkers America has produced. It is but natural that I should shrink from discussion of a subject developed by so original a thinker and selected by him for presentation before you in his own inimitable way. Again, I belong to the class of knowledge-makers who must feel their own limitations in appearing before those who assimilate and apply knowledge, placing it within reach of the people, and therefore performing the real work of raising humanity from plane to plane as time goes on. I apprehend that my ideas may seem vague and my expressions obscure, but I confidently appeal to your intelligence to aid in making the ideas clear and useful to the multitude of American youth for whom you stand sponsors. First, as to definitions. Definitions rendered the more necessary for the reason that the essential ideas which I wish to express have not yet found their way into the dictionaries. Since early in the history of knowledge, men have recognized the atmosphere, that is, the body of air above the earth. At first, the recognition was vague, it became more and more definite as time went on, and now educated men and women and children know the atmosphere as a gaseous envelope surrounding the solid earth, an envelope composed of a complex mixture of substances, chiefly of oxygen and nitrogen. This atmosphere is one of the geospheres, the outermost of four. Since the beginning of knowledge, too, men have perceived the waters of the earth, and, as time has gone on, they have recognized more and more clearly 
the substantial unity of the standing waters of ocean and bay and lake, the running waters of springs and rivers, and the solid waters of Arctic and Antarctic snows and the glaciers of mountain and pole, and they are coming to extend the unity to include the aqueous vapor of the air, one of the constituent gases of the atmosphere. Water is a definite mineral substance existing in three forms, a solid, liquid, and gas, though chiefly in the second form. It constitutes a hydrosphere, the second of the four geospheres, covering the greater part of the solid earth and covered by the greater part of the atmosphere. Human knowledge began with the recognition of the solid earth. As time passed, the knowledge became definite through the endless interactions between human mind and human environment. And today, most intelligent people recognize a terrestrial sphere beginning with the soils and rocks beneath their feet, passing beneath river and lake and ocean to the antipodes, and extending from equator to pole in a spheroidal mass forming the visible solid part of our planet. Now it is only the superficial portion of this spheroidal mass which lies within reach of observation. This is the rocky crust of the earth, the object matter of the science of geology. It consists of a wide variety of mineral substances, mainly combined in rocks of a specific gravity, averaging about 2.70. This earth crust forms the lands of the earth and the basins of the oceans. All of the geographic and topographic features so well described by Dr. Redway are built up or carved out of it. The continents, the islands, the valleys, the mountains of the world represent this vast mass of rock matter, which it is convenient to call the lithosphere, the third of the four geospheres. While observation of terrestrial things ends with the atmosphere and hydrosphere and lithosphere, definite thinkers find it necessary to form some idea of the constitution of the interior portions of the planetary mass at depths below the reach of direct vision. Now, knowledge of the Earth's interior is gained not through geology, but through the sister science, astronomy. You are aware that within recent years, astronomers have reduced to system our sun, the planets and asteroids which circle about it, the satellites which follow the planets, and the long mysterious rings of Saturn, the various constituents of our solar system. And the paths of the planets and satellites have been surveyed, while each of the bodies has been measured and weighed, so that their volumes and densities are known with considerable accuracy. Let me indicate the accuracy with which this astronomical work has been done by saying that Sun, planet and satellite have been weighed with an accuracy no less than that of the grocer in dealing out sugar and tea, and that the orbits of planets, satellites and asteroids have been surveyed as accurately as the roadways and even the railways of the Earth's surface. The Earth itself has been weighed, with somewhat less accuracy than the other planets, it is true, yet with sufficient accuracy to indicate that its mean density is nearly six times that of water, 
5.6 plus minus, or more than twice that of the known lithosphere. Accordingly, it is known beyond peradventure that the Earth has an interior portion much denser than the known exterior, and this somewhat vaguely defined path of the Earth may conveniently be called a centrosphere, the innermost of the four geospheres. In the light of these definitions, you will understand that my object in coming before you is not so much to say new things as to try to establish a new point of view. Knowledge progresses in two ways which are interrelated, yet fairly distinct. The first is analysis, and the second is synthesis. The sum of knowledge is increased by analysis, while its quality is improved by synthesis. I am now attempting not to bring new facts before you, but to put old facts together in a new way, and thus to carry you to a higher plane in the synthesis or generalization of a wide range of observations, and I am seeking to do this in such a manner as to reflect the workings of another man's mind, the mind of the real author of this address. Let us now consider the relations between the geospheres. In the first place, the matter of the geospheres is unlike in state or physical condition. The atmosphere is almost wholly gaseous. The hydrosphere is for the most part liquid, though in part solid and in small part gaseous. The lithosphere is almost wholly solid, though a minute part is gaseous, chiefly as impurities in the air while a small part may be liquid under temporary and local circumstances. For the present, the centrosphere may be considered as trans-solid. Thus, the four geospheres represent the three well-known states of matter, together with a fourth state which is not certainly known from direct observation. It is the marvelously delicate interrelation between the three exterior geospheres that gives character to the earth as the theatre of life and the home of humanity, for plant and beast and man are alike dependent on the lithosphere for the solid part of their bodily substance, on the hydrosphere for the greater part of their substance, and on the atmosphere for the breath of life. In the second place, the exterior geospheres at least are, despite the differences in physical condition, in some degree intermixed. The greater part of the atmosphere floats over the waters and lands of the earth as a thin mantle growing more and more tenuous outward. An early estimate of its thickness was 45 miles, but the American physicist Woodward has recently shown that the outer portion is much less dense than at first supposed, and that the total thickness of the mantle exceeds the radius of the solid earth. A small part of the atmosphere is intermixed with the waters of the hydrosphere, especially the running waters of rivers and brooks. Another part pushes down into the lithosphere, filling interstices in the rocks and playing an important role in the chemical and physical changes ever proceeding in the earth crust. In like manner, while the greater part of the hydrosphere exists in the oceans, lakes, rivers, snowfields and glaciers, a considerable volume rises far into the atmosphere in the form of aqueous vapor, 
and a much greater volume permeates the lithosphere as groundwater or in still more intimate combination with the solid earth substance. So, too, the material of the lithosphere is in small part dissolved or suspended in the waters or afloat in the air. At the same time, there is an obscure interrelation between the lithosphere proper and the centrosphere, manifested in volcanic and other phenomena, and perhaps in the presence of metals among the rocks, for there are certain reasons, which cannot now be set forth, for regarding the centrosphere as an aggregation of metalloid substances, much as the lithosphere is an aggregation of lithoid substances. The blending of the exterior geospheres is especially intimate where the three are in normal contact, that is, about the terrestrial surface on which men live and with which geographers deal, and the soils, the plants which subsist on the soils, the animals which consume the plants and the crowning human organism which dominates all the others are products of the commingling. Just as the geospheres are intermingled in material, so they are, in some measure, interrelated in normal movements. The atmosphere is an aerial ocean, ever astir with currents due primarily to the rotation and revolution of the sphere, that is, to movements depending on the density and volume of centrosphere and lithosphere. The waters of the ocean are evaporated into the atmosphere, carried far in its currents as aqueous vapor, and then precipitated to flow back again as fresh water, while the body of the ocean is enlivened by currents set in motion by the ever-moving atmosphere, as well as by tides produced by rotation and revolution. The lithosphere is constantly destroyed and reconstructed by the moving waters of the hydrosphere, while the earth crust is warped and continents are lifted and sea bottoms depressed by the obscure but potent movements of the centrosphere. So, the normal movements of the geospheres are interrelated, and most of them, from the rhythmic rise and fall of the earth crust, through which continents are lifted and submerged to the trade winds and oceanic currents, may be traced to the motions of the centrosphere. Let us now consider for a moment how the conditions and motions of the exterior geospheres would be affected by circumstances which, at first sight, might seem trivial, for thereby we may see more clearly how delicate are the interrelations on which terrestrial life and human activity depend. Suppose the temperature of the earth were raised, say, 200 degrees Fahrenheit, what would follow? Your common sense, born of experience, tells you that much or all of the hydrosphere would cease to exist as such and become a part of the atmosphere, that the atmosphere would thereby be multiplied in volume and density, changed in substance, and modified in movements, yet that the lithosphere would remain substantially unchanged, save that some of its substance would be dissolved in the densified atmosphere. Probably, the centrosphere would not be greatly affected, yet even so slight a change in circumstance as an increase of temperature by only 200 degrees would remove the hydrosphere from the earth and greatly modify the atmosphere. 
Let us next consider the effect which would follow the reduction of the temperature of the earth by, say, 400 degrees Fahrenheit, something we should have been unable to do a generation ago, but which we can now do easily by reason of recent experiments and discoveries in physics. You will remember that about a score of years ago, Caete of France and Piété of Switzerland began to liquefy different gases by the application of pressure at low temperature. Many of you know that this line of experimentation was continued by the distinguished chemist and physicist of London, Dewar, who liquefied one gas after another until every gaseous substance known to man, including hydrogen, has been reduced to the liquid state. And I am sure many of you know that an American, Tripler, has recently improved on the work of our European cousins and has learned to liquefy air in large quantities, at low cost, by the skillful application of pressure and artificially reduced temperature. Tripler's work, by the way, is worthy of more than passing note, for his advance has given mankind a new hold on the powers of nature, with a promise of practical applications yielding benefits much greater than were promised by electrical control when inventors first began to utilize electricity for mechanical and other purposes. But this is a digression. Now, liquid air is a little lighter than water and boils or evaporates at about 312 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So we know that if the temperature of our planet were to be reduced by 400 degrees, the atmosphere would cease to exist as such and would shrink to one eight hundredth of its present bulk and be converted into a hydrosphere. We know too that long before the reduction was completed, the hydrosphere would cease to exist as such and would become a part of the lithosphere, for the waters of ocean and lake would be congealed, as we know from Tripler's experiments, into a dry, powdery mass of crystals, crumbling under blows or pressure just as granite and limestone and other rocks crumble at our present temperature. The waters would become rock added to the rock which now exists. By this transformation, the volume of the lithosphere would be augmented by that of the present oceans. The present sea level would become sea bottom and a lighter sea of liquid air, only a dozen or a score of yards in depth, would wash the frozen globe, leaving continents and islands rising above its surface in a geographic configuration differing not greatly from that of the present. Over this globe no air would float, save possibly a light vapour scantier than the aqueous vapour now born in our atmosphere, and no man or beast or plant, no trace of life, could exist. End of section 4